And finally, I, I, it, I think things like at work started getting worse and then it was spreading on the news more. And I was like, okay, yeah, like I, I have this opportunity to go help try to make a difference in this situation. I have skills that are, I'm not using right now. You know, my shifts were getting canceled. I'm not using my skills. I could help out in this situation and you know, we don't have kids. There's nothing that says I can't go. So I asked for a leave of absence from work and they were pretty receptive to it. And I got offered a position and the next week I was leaving to Massachusetts. Hello, hello, hello. Happy Tuesday, everyone. I'm so happy to have you here with me. So looking back on this whole podcast situation, so we launched this particular podcast on March 3rd, 3-3-2020, this year, and shortly thereafter, we hit a pandemic, and I was really honestly thinking at the time we should take a minute and you know, really kind of take a pause during the pandemic, especially given the fact that this is a healthcare podcast. However, we moved forward, right? And we charged forward. And I'm actually very glad that we did because I have brought on so many amazing people and amplified voices. And we've had so many amazing resources for all of you. And today is something that has led up to this moment. This is actually, this is the first part of a series that I have been wanting to do for a while. So um, today I'm going to bring on a COVID frontline provider. This is a nurse, an amazing NICU nurse, a dear friend of mine, a colleague turned COVID frontline provider. And Today, we're really going to deep dive into a unique perspective of the medical world. And this is actually the first part of a three, possibly four-part series. I have another um, provider I'm bringing on as well to get her perspective of working during a pandemic. And I think this is really important. This is a really important aspect of what we are all facing today. And I think it's something that you guys should really hear from. You should hear from the providers who are giving their care selflessly each day through this pandemic. And this is an uphill battle, you guys. This is not a a virus that we even understand today. We're still learning about it. And it is, it's very anxiety driving. I will just tell you from a personal perspective, perspective. I mean, it is getting more real every day and we are in the second wave of this pandemic. And I think it's really important to highlight these stories. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Tori Meskin. I am the founder of the Selfie Podcast, a platform dedicated to fascinating people in the healthcare space. We're sharing career journeys, life tips, resource tricks, and really getting to know the person behind the journey. We're making healthcare hip one selfie at a time. And today, you guys, we're bringing on Vanessa. So Vanessa has been a NICU nurse for several years. She has worked in multiple hospital organizations, and she really made the selfless decision to move across the country to care for some of the sickest patients we had in the nation during the height of this pandemic. 
She was really caring for these patients with a selfless warrior mindset. And I really wanted to dive into this. It actually made me very emotional talking to her. So not only do we have that aspect of Vanessa's care, but we also dive into a more personal side of her life as a gay or queer member of the LGBTQT community and learning more about the personal side of her as a nurse. And so we did divide this up into two segments. So we're going to be airing today's segment and then we're also going to be airing part two on Friday for you guys. And I'm really excited about this. This particular episode is really near and dear to my heart and something that I feel like we should be highlighting um, now in history. You know, we're hitting a lot of really amazing aspects of our country's history today. And I feel like this particular episode is so meaningful to me the next two, three episodes. So I hope you guys enjoy them as much as I did recording them. And without further ado, let's dive in. Was there someone that you like really looked up to that you were like, that's my, that's my goal? For sure. I mean, both my parents were role models to me, like not to be cheesy, but like seriously, you know, my dad was a police officer and, you know, he worked hard for us. He was gone and not like, oh my gosh, my dad was never there. Not like that. Like he worked a lot, but I knew he was working so hard for us. He worked a lot of overtime and, and stuff like that. So, but he was always there for what we needed. He was always at our sports events and things like that. So he was always there for us, but, you know, he worked really hard and I, you know, I looked up to that, but my mom, obviously, She's like my number one idol. I she's a nurse. She was actually a NICU oh, nurse. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. So she was a NICU nurse for 27 years. And, you know, she was like kind of one of those old school nurses that she was a nurse's aide at this hospital in West Covina, California. And she then she went and worked in, I think, like mother baby or something and then got into the NICU as, as a registered nurse. And she's had her RN. And she stayed there. She worked there forever. She did charge nurse. She, she was on the pick team, you know, starting pick lines. Badass. Yeah, it's just really cool. And now I think she did something that's even, I look up to more and admire more, which I think will tie in kind of to the conversation that we're going to have. You know, she retired the same time when my dad retired. She's young. I mean, she's in her early 50s. And so my dad went back to work uh, as a court marshal for the L.A. federal courts. And so my mom decided to go back to work as well. She took a couple travel assignments, but she just decided, you know, she'd work in NICU forever and that's all she knew. But Mm -hmm. she just didn't feel like, she just wanted something totally different. And so my brother working as a social worker, because you can work as a social worker with your bachelor's. uh, There's some differences. I'd have to ask him again specifically, but his position is actually as a social worker at the West Valley Detention Center, which is like in Rancho. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, you know, mom, if you really want to change, we have positions here for mental health RNs. And she was kind of like, well, I, you know, I've never done that. I don't know. I've uh, this is, And he said, mom, you know, just come, try it out, see what you think. And if you don't like it, then that's okay. If you do, then you can try it out. Yeah. And she loves it. She's worked there for uh, maybe almost a year now. So I love this because I feel like, you know, I think a lot of people who are a lot of questions that I get as far as NICU is... Do you lose all your skills if you go into NICU and you only work NICU? But I think that's super cool to highlight because that's just a point to, you know, if you want to go into something else, you definitely can. You can try something else. You don't have to be stuck in this little area. And I think we have that like mentality, right? Of like, 
if you go into one thing or one niche, like that's it. And you know, you kind of have to focus on that and there's no way out. Well, like, no, look at your mom. She worked in NICU for 27 years and here she is doing something else. Absolutely. And I think that's the beauty of nursing. I think I think sometimes it gets kind of drilled into us the opposite. You know, once you're at a hospital, especially if you're like at a bigger hospital, um, especially a children's hospital, things right. like that. Right. People are like, oh, well, you can never leave. You'll never have an opportunity like this again, you know? And it's yeah. it, it's just not true. It's not. That's the, the, the part of the reason why I went into nursing and I think why... Uh, nursing is so enticing to so many people is that you can do so many different things and so people really need to and it's hard I, I understand but really try to not be afraid of trying new things because we have those opportunities as nurses and you should just go for it you never know life's too short right absolutely so you I mean kind of backing up to NICU did you always know you wanted to go into NICU I mean I know your mom was but was that like a goal for you no well so I always love kids and, and I think a part of me too wanted to be my own person so I didn't want to be exactly like my mom in a way yeah. not that there's anything wrong with that of course because I ended up being almost exactly like that. <laughs> <Go for Um, laughs> there's just nothing wrong with that but I just kind of wanted to I guess figure it out on my own and in the beginning I really enjoyed the OR what I found like in an OR circulating nurse wasn't quite what I was looking for so I was like okay maybe not that you know going through my rotations in school I thought you know pick you that might be it I think picky would be really cool. And you know what? I just went, did my rotation, and it was it was hard. I, I think, I don't know if it was just, I think your rotations that you get in nursing school really dictates what field you decide to go into yeah. as a nurse. Because you could go and just say you think, oh, OB's going to be the best, and there's one nurse that's just so mean to you or whatever. It makes, ruins your experience, and it kind of taints what you Yeah, if you have a bad that, experience right. there, I would agree with that. Yeah, so yeah. I just didn't have, I guess, like the best experience in the patient that I had. It was difficult. Then I had my day in the NICU, and I was like, this is it. This is everything I've ever wanted. And so I knew I wanted to work in the NICU. I, I From then on, I, I took every step that I could. You know, I asked, what do I need to do to get hired here? I wanted to work at Rady Children's because it was the only level four center in San Diego County. Yeah. And I worked, um, I was able to get a position as a secretary in the NICU. It was, it was, I was a PCA, patient care aide or assistant. Low key, I always tell everybody, I'm like, that is the best like hack to mm-hmm. become a secretary or a CNA mm-hmm. or a scribe and somehow get into and like, you know, you kind of become everybody's like friend. You get to learn things. You get to see exactly. things. Like that's the best tip, exactly. I feel like, if you can do it. And I think um, the year that I actually graduated, they were thinking of not having a new grad program at Radio, And I was like really worried about it, you know, because I was like, this is I've worked for this. You know, I worked part time nights as the PCA there, I knew everyone at that point. I got an externship there, so I had done my externship hours. So I was like, okay, hey, I've done everything. They were talking back and forth, and then they decided, you know what? Yeah, we'll do a small group. So there was three of us in the new grad program. Um, so yeah, it, it just, it kind of took, I guess, my rotations to really know, but I think I was always destined to work in the NICU. Yeah. Do you, I mean, you've obviously been a NICU nurse for quite a few years now. So from your perspective for upcoming NICU nurses, what are the best qualities you think that NICU nurses possess? Uh, possess? Yeah, everyone says that NICU nurses are OCD. I don't think you have to be OCD (laughs) to be a NICU nurse, but I think you do really need to be organized. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and I think that's a nurse in general. But I think for some reason in the NICU, you know, we're doing things on little tiny babies. You need to really kind of have your thoughts together, have everything organized, especially when you have a patient with multiple lines, intubation, things like that. Yeah, you have to be super organized. I think uh, patience is really important. And again, I think this is nursing in general, but what a lot of people talk about the NICU is, oh, how is it dealing with the families? And yeah, so, it's a big part of it. Yeah, right? and you have to really be yeah. empathetic of what and compassionate for what these families are going through because this is obviously not what they planned. You know, everyone thinks, you know, we have a baby, we're going to go home, we're going to be happy. No one no plans, one plans to, to have a NICU, NICU baby. Yeah. No one. And yeah. I think it's, it's, it's so easy to forget that and... It's really important to kind of when we're having a frustrating day or dealing with, you know, parents caring for a family that is having an exceptionally difficult time with the situation that we really try to take a step back and think, you know, what would how would I feel in this situation? I would be angry, too. I would be sad, too. I would be frustrated as well, especially in people that, you know don't know what's going on in healthcare, don't know what NICU cares. Because NICU, mm-hmm. NICU care isn't talked about a lot because yeah. it's not the norm. Yeah. It's a very small... We're kind of like the taboo boutique part of the world yeah. that you're not... It's not supposed to happen, right? It's like you, no one is supposed to have a baby that has X, Y, and Z problems. Like, that's not supposed to happen. And so we don't... You're right. We don't really talk about it. And I think also as a NICU nurse, sometimes it's really easy to get um, jaded, like we get to see like we see some of the same things over and over and over or diagnoses or things that we just kind of get used to doing and we're just kind of in our head we're like well we see this every day so this is just normal and I think it's easy to kind of go to that place where we're not patient mm-hmm. and we're not as you know and I think that's it's a good point to be to remind yourself take that step back I think it's really important so from your perspective as far as a NICU nurse goes what do you think like what's your favorite part of the job least favorite part taking care of babies take it's a privilege i think Mm -hmm. you know Uh, especially since i've kind of gone into the lnd role so on our unit we have an lnd role uh for this role you take like an extra training class there's like some competencies to go through and we're able to attend moderate and high-risk deliveries as a NICU nurse, it's like the most, especially because I feel like some of us are really adrenaline junkies. Like we yeah. kind of like the high risk kids. Like uh, I think there's a group of NICU nurses who <clears throat> gravitate to, you know, more of the babies who are kind of going out, you know, just need a little respiratory sport, need a little, you know, antibiotics. And then there's a group of us who like really do love the high risk, like the adrenaline moments. And the, I would say, you know, when you go into a labor and delivery or when you're attending a high-risk delivery, like, you just never know what you're going to get. Oh, you you never know. And it's always yeah. those cases where, you know, we're running to a delivery and it's high-risk and all these things are, are going wrong and you get there and the baby's crying the second you get there. Yeah, which is great. You're fine. like, yes. Right, which is obviously what yeah. we want. And then it's always when you don't expect it, you yes. know, things could go wrong. So, yeah, it's just you never know what you're going to get. So I think that's one of my favorite one of my favorite things to do as far as a role in the NICU. Uh, my least favorite part, I think, can go without saying is, you know, our, our kiddos that, that don't, we don't have the outcomes that we hope for. You know, yeah. that's, it's really hard to deal with. And luckily for us, most of the time, our kiddos come in, we take care of them. They have, you know, usually minor issues. We deal with it. We have a great team, great surgeons, great physicians, yeah. pharmacists, everyone. And they get to go home. And, and that's really exciting. Um, 
I think sometimes the family-centered care is super important, although I think sometimes uh, caring for the whole entire family unit, it could be very stressful. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if I want to label that as my least favorite part, but it, it is one of the more more challenging parts of working in the NICU, for sure. And I think a lot of people yeah. recognize that because I always get that question. Oh, it must be so hard to deal, you know, quote, deal with the parents. And yeah, sometimes it can be challenging and it adds another aspect to our job. But I, I also really appreciate the families and how strong they are. Mm-hmm most of the time everything that they contribute yeah super interesting because I do think a part a big part of that and I hear kind of what you're saying is for me and I think what we don't really tap into it's it's a big energy exchange when you're trying to support someone at possibly their lowest moment right like this is supposed to be the most exciting part of their lives this is supposed to be a moment where they're you know they're supposed to be going home and all these things and you're supporting someone through a journey that is quite honestly, probably the hardest thing they'll ever go through. If you have the idea of losing a child before you even get to know them, like that's scary. And we're guiding them through quite possibly the hardest thing they've ever gone, they will right. ever go through. It can be heavy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, you, I think as nurses, again, and this goes generalized in nursing, but in the NICU, it is. You give, I think we give so much all day long and that can be really taxing. Um, And I think we have to be mindful of that. And I think we'll touch on it later, but I'm a huge proponent for self-care. I think it's so important in a lot of jobs, but in nursing specifically in my experience. And recently I've really been trying to, you know, get that self-care on point. So that's good. um, I'm really proud of you. I mean, I'm excited and, you know, kind of diving into maybe um, the dynamics of nursing. So initially you started as a travel nurse. Can you talk a little bit about that decision and like maybe get specific about the details of how you did it? At the time I was, so I was working at Rady Children's Hospital for the most part to start travel nursing. I can't say for all specialties, but at least for the NICU at the time, the bare minimum you had to have was one year experience. Yeah. And my experience was in a level four children's hospital NICU, which is the highest level NICU that you can be. So we did ECMO surgeries, everything like that. So I tried to get as much experience as I could. And I was one of those people that did enjoy taking care of the more acute patients and the challenge behind that. And like I mentioned earlier, when I was in nursing school, I just had kind of noticed when I would be paired with a travel nurse on the unit, I just felt like they were, they had a different perspective to things than the staff nurses that had only worked at that one hospital, you know? And I think you've experienced this as well. They just kind of have this almost, I want to say, call it like a confidence about them. They they always seemed like they knew how to address situations in from multiple different angles, and they're they were a little more open minded to suggestions and things like that. And I wanted to be like that. And working at Rady was a really great experience, but I just knew, okay, you know, at this point. I'm rotating every two months from day shift to night shifts because that was kind of our option for the first year we rotated, which was good because we got yeah. the kind of workflow from both shifts. You know, there can be differences between those for sure. Yeah. But I didn't have any seniority or anything to lose at that point. Either I continued rotating or I would go to night shift. It wasn't like, oh, I've been here now. I'm on day shift. I don't want to leave because I'm on day shift, which can be That's really a huge hard. Dynamic. Yeah, it's a huge thing. Yeah. So it's interesting because I feel like you and I, I started traveling kind of for a similar reason. I liked the I liked the idea of seeing different organizations, learning from different places, being more, I felt like kind of like the same thing, like this 
a little bit more confident, you know, kind of getting out of my comfort zone, but it forces you to become a better nurse and learning from people and seeing things. And what I think is so cool and which is crazy is, you know, more recently the pandemic started and you made this crazy selfless decision to pick up your life and go care for some of the sickest patients we had in quite possibly the entire nation. And you did that early on. So I actually want to kind of dive into that a little bit. Like for you, what would you say is like the moment where you realized like COVID was like, what were your, what were your initial thoughts of this whole situation? The COVID thing has been a whirlwind for everybody, you know? I think initially it was just kind of talk almost. It didn't hit Southern California initially, uh, at least not at the level that it was hitting New York. I remember San Francisco was, it was, there was like a a, uh, Washington. Yes, yeah. My sister was dealing with it in maybe like early March. But yeah, you're right. We didn't feel it. And I don't think I really understood what was going on. And my wife and I had gotten kind of lucky, actually, you know, during the whole toilet paper sellout thing. We had just gone to Costco and we were kind of set like maybe a week or two. It was just a coincidence. And we had tried to really avoid going out and going shopping. And then finally it was like, okay, we got to go to the grocery store. So we went to the grocery store for the first time in a couple of weeks and it was terrifying. I I remember just feeling so anxious and it was almost contagious, you know? I felt like maybe we should buy all the toilet paper. (laughs) It was just, it was scary. It was just this weird thing. I've never gone to a grocery store and everything was gone. Yeah, it's like zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. What was the moment where you really felt the realness of it? Uh, I was on orientation at the hospital that I got a contract at in Massachusetts and this guy, Greg, who was a nurse there, really great guy, was uh, showing us around the hospital. And he took us out back to show us the freezer truck makeshift morgue mm-hmm. they were using for their patients because their morgue was too small to handle all of the patients that were dying. It's crazy. And I remember someone asked, what is your, uh, what are your outcomes like of intubated patients? And he said, oh, I think once they're intubated, it's like about a 5% chance that they'll survive. And I remember we were standing outside and it was, we were in Massachusetts at the time when I first got there, it was cold. I mean, I think it was probably like 30 degrees when we're standing outside. I remember it was freezing. I'm like looking up like, what did I do? Yeah. This is serious, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. What um, What made you decide to take the assignment? What was going through your head? There is no better time to be talking about this. And I'm going to get right to the point here, people. If you or someone you know is struggling, I have the solution for you. Better help making professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere, you guys. Working during this pandemic has really taken a toll on me personally and my mental health. Anxiety is a real thing and you guys know this is something that I have been working through. So finding resources for myself was truly essential. 
And you guys also know I need something that is efficient, effective, and also easily accessible. So let me get specific about BetterHelp. This offers access to licensed, trained, experienced, and accredited psychologists, including marriage and family therapists, clinical social workers, and board licensed professional counselors. Whether you are someone that's working through stress or anxiety, especially to my frontline workers right now, or even nursing students or someone who's in the medical field trying to work through something, um, or if it's about your relationship, possibly parenting or even depression, BetterHelp truly offers the online therapy from the safety and comfort of your home. And this is just as effective, but also more convenient for you guys. And to me, mental health is truly worth the investment. This is also more affordable than traditional counseling. You can reach out to your personal counselor at any time. And what I love about this is the way that they pick the counselors for you. So you go through a series of questions to personalize your experience. And then they find a therapist who fits your needs and your preferences from their network. And let me tell you, this is a network of over 7,000 accredited experienced counselors. So if you or maybe somebody you know really needs to reach out to someone, you are going to get 10% off of your first month when you head over to betterhelp.com forward slash selfie, C-E-L-L-F-I-E. Sending some much love out to everyone. I know this has been crazy times, but I truly hope everyone from the selfie community here reaches out if you are someone that needs a little help right now, just like me. So thank you, BetterHelp, for your paid partnership and allowing me to produce this show. And you guys, without further ado, let's dive back into the episode kids and babies weren't getting COVID, which is fantastic. I'm so happy for that. They were kind of cutting our hours a little bit, asking us to take some paid time off. Um, they were cutting even like management hours. Um, and per diem people were getting canceled. They're canceling a lot of shifts. And I was kind of thinking, okay, what am I going to do? I mean, I'm not doing anything here. Is there something that I can do? You know, so initially I'm looking, hey, maybe they're moving nurses in these hospitals because I'd kind of heard about this a little bit. Maybe actually you told me a little bit we about, it. about it. They were training some mm. of the NICU nurses to kind of help out and be resources on like med surge yeah. and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, so maybe there other hospitals are doing that in New York or Massachusetts or wherever and I could go there and maybe work in the NICU. That's like initially it's like I'm going to go work in the NICU and do a travel assignment. Maybe I can help relieve some of these hospitals. And there really weren't NICU positions actually. And my recruiter, who's the same recruiter I had worked with previously through AYA, was like, hey, you know, they're hiring a lot of adult ICU nurses right now. And I said, you know, I don't have any adult experience. And like since nursing school, I was a nursing aide. Like, that's it, you know. And he said, well, think about it, because some of these hospitals, it doesn't really, um, they don't care if you have adult specific experience. They're looking for people who know how to manage ventilators and how to manage drips, drips, how to Mm -hmm. titrate drips and you know take care of sick acute patients and I was like well you know I can do that but let me think about it let me think about it and finally I I I think things like at work started getting worse and then it was spreading on the news more and I was like okay yeah like I I have this opportunity to go help try to make a difference in this situation I have skills that are I'm not using right now you know my shifts were getting canceled I'm not using my skills I could help out in this situation and you know we don't have kids. There's nothing that says I can't go. So I asked for a leave of absence from work and they were pretty receptive to it. And I 
got offered a position and the next week I was leaving to Massachusetts. So the timeline of this, when sure. did what month, what was the date when you went out? Just so we can get a thought process of when all of this, was it March? Yeah, so it was the end of March. Okay, so you were going, my point being you were going through, you were in the thick of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And just, yeah, so this was like beginning of the spike, if you will, of everything that was happening. And so travel nursing is absolutely crazy. And I will say sometimes like you're diving into a unit, just depending on the, you're going in as a travel nurse to relieve regardless of what the situation is. But can you talk us through what it was like being a travel nurse starting in a, during a pandemic? What was that like? Because you've started as a travel nurse at other places, but it's so different. So I think uh, for people that aren't familiar with traveling or travel nurses in general, there's a, a little bit of a difference. So there's regular travel contracts and they're kind of usually 13 weeks. You go, usually you have to go through like a more prolonged hospital orientation. So at Chalk, I actually had to sit like through a full week of hospital orientation. And then you have your on-unit orientation days. You usually you get like three days. For a rapid response, it's is a different kind of traveling. So rapid response is something that's used when they need nurses like today, yesterday, you know? And so they, it's a more accelerated process. You get one day of orientation and that's it. You have to kind of be ready to fly. As a new traveler, it would be really, really difficult. Once you travel a couple times, because obviously like say just one example is charting. It could be a really hard time a hard thing to learn on a new unit and so once you kind of start as a traveler you use multiple different charting systems you kind of get the hang of what you got to know and what you got to do and it becomes a little easier to pick up on things a little quicker um so you know i i it was a saturday that my recruiter said hey they're they have this position in massachusetts are you interested do you think you can leave and I had to be able to leave. I had to start two Mondays from that Saturday, which meant I was going to be leaving like on Saturday, the following Saturday. And I said, yeah, you know, my hospital, they seem like they're going to give me this leave of absence. Let's do this. He told me the same day, okay, you got the job. Another thing with rapid response nursing is usually there's not an interview. So like with a regular travel contract, usually the manager or someone, the educator will call you, kind of give you a little interview, get a fill for you. Uh, it's usually over the phone. Uh, in this case, it's just a team that decides if you're qualified or not. And they decided that I met the qualifications for it. And they gave me the position. And the same day I booked flights and we were ready to leave the following Saturday. Can you describe what it's like um, being a NICU nurse diving into adult world? Yeah. Um, so I got a lot of your crazies for that. Um, <laughs> and... yeah. I just, it was a different, it's a different time, you know, I don't know if that should be like an excuse or an answer, uh, pandemic times are different times, you know, we're just doing everything we can to help out, you know, and so going from the NICU to adult care is obviously different, and I had to take, one thing, one of the things I did have to do was take my ACLS certification, and I studied 
I'm, I'm kind of, like I mentioned, I'm kind of a nerd. So I just studied the ACLS book and I reached out to some friends that worked with adults, some friends that worked in adult ICU and just asked them like, hey, what do I need to know? What's like your workflow? Because I think we have, a, NICU has a very separate workflow. You know, we have our cares that are based around like our baby sleeping mm-hmm. and like diaper changes. Obviously <laughs> in adults, it's not like that so much. Yeah. And so I, I just wanted to know what the workflow was like, what were common medications that they use. And, you know, there was a lot of similarities. Okay. You know, I know, I know that med or we use fentanyl or, you know, we, we use norepi or, you know, things like that. And Levo. Yeah. Yeah. So there weren't that many differences initially. It was just me trying to study whatever textbook and resource online that I could find. Yeah. So you were grasping at anything to kind of just survive yeah once I got there and started orientation you know I remember walking through the unit and I was like oh hey they use the same ventilators as us so great I already got a head up on the ventilators I know how to use them the settings are different they they base their settings more so on tidal volume Mm -hmm. than we do Mm -hmm. in the NICU and so but I had I had asked a couple RTs hey what are adult vent settings what do they look like just yeah what should be be something I'm looking for yeah Yeah. and then uh, once I started taking care of adults I realized that taking care of an intubated, which most of my patients were intubated, intubated and sedated adult really wasn't that much different from taking care of an intubated, sedated infant. That's You know, the kind of basics of the care mm-hmm. 100% overlap. There's, they're just bigger. Yeah, they're yeah just it's bigger. interesting. As, I mean, just diving into that a little bit. I mean, how did you feel transitioning from obviously our lines and our you know, central lines are a little different, our things are a little different. How is that like workflow kind of getting used to for you? I think too, what's interesting is like I mentioned before, NICU nurses are super OCD. And I think our hospital specifically is very, very touchy about our lines and preventing collapses and everything like that. And they are in adults as well, but it just seems different. So I think, you know, kind of getting used to that. And then obviously the lines they use are different. Like a lot of like IJ lines, um, you know, we had a lot more um, like dialysis, like hemodialysis catheters. We don't use that in the yeah, NICU. Um, so just kind of getting familiar with that. But outside of of that, it's it's the same. We manage the lines the same way. They change their lines very similarly the way we do in the NICU. Um, you know, cleaning techniques and things like that are, are similar. So that, that wasn't too different. And then even with, um, you know, intubated patients, they use the inline suction catheters. So I already knew how to do that. Yeah. Just things like transferable. that. Transferable. ICU to ICU, it felt yeah. like you could do it. Yeah. Um, so going a little micro into your dynamics, because obviously you're moving across country from California all the way to Massachusetts. Here we go. Where did you live? What were the dynamics of this situation? How did you manage all that? It was really isolating. Like, I'll just start by saying, I think a lot of people felt isolated during quarantine. And I get it. But not only were we quarantined, we were also across the country away from our family. And I say we because I brought my wife, Valerie, with me. And everything that happened there, I mean, I could not have done without her. She was my emotional support. She was my partner. I mean, she did so much for me. And I would not have had the strength to go through all of that without her. And I'm so glad. I mean, I remember a couple of people even asking, like, are you bringing her with you? Like, what if she gets sick? And I, I was just like, I can't go without her. You know, she, I need that support person. And I'm so glad that I had her. And so when we went over there, it was a little 
tricky too because a lot of companies were advertising like hey we're giving all this free stuff away to frontline workers and I thought okay you know we'll be able to find a place and it'll be great well it wasn't that easy you know (laughs) um oh yeah so we decided to go through Airbnb because they were advertising some discounts for workers and we ended up not getting anything from them actually but uh, we did end up renting an Airbnb and the person that owned the house actually really took care of us oh, they, they awesome. gave us a little bit of a discount because we were going to be there for six weeks yeah and you know so i talked quick. with them and yeah. they worked with us and it was great we had we, so i was li- we were living in andover massachusetts which is like a suburb maybe 30 minutes outside of boston like north of boston mm-hmm. really nice little town and then i was working in Methuen, uh, massachusetts at holy family hospital and it's really cool because it's close to new hampshire so a lot of nurses actually lived in new hampshire that worked there and then once we got there we needed to rent a car so we rented a car luckily we were only living about it took me 10 minutes max to get to work and there's no traffic of course with every everyone being home from work um so we rented a car and i just commuted and yeah that was was kind of like the living situation part of it how did you like were there things i mean i don't know how you guys did this dynamic but like laundry and grocery shopping how was that for you guys it was i think it was the same difficulties that like a lot of people had as far as like going to the grocery store and things like that luckily as far as laundry goes we did we made sure we had a place with a washer and dryer because I didn't know what laundry mats or anything was going to look like. And it's hard. It's hard when you take a travel assignment where you're looking like, okay, here's the hospital. When you don't know the areas around, you don't know what's around restaurants, grocery stores or anything like that. So it's always kind of challenging. So making sure that we had a wash and dryer was kind of a priority for us. And Valerie pretty much did all the laundry. I was working my contract was for four days a week, four twelves a week, but I was working usually like five days a week. So I was barely even home. So she would go, there was a Whole Foods um, about a block from our our Airbnb. So we did a lot of Whole Foods shopping. Um, yeah, which was pretty awesome. Kind of expensive, but yeah. due to the proximity, it was worth it. You know, we only had the one car. What was it like? I mean, just in general, maybe having battling these feelings of like feeling exposed or you know how do you overcome those feelings because I do feel like you know you you're going into a war zone basically mm-hmm. what was that like for you starting from before I even went I asked about the PPE situation because I had heard stories of like places in New York that didn't have PPE and all these different things so I wanted to make sure I was protected because again it wasn't just me it was my wife who was going to be at risk and we were the only you know, luckily I wouldn't be around my family and everything like that, but still, you know, I didn't want to make her sick. And, uh, you know, they said that they had enough PPE. So I felt reassured by that. Then going there, it's very, as it is, we're already really clean, but I felt like everything was contaminated. So I was just really careful. That's the only thing that I felt like I could do is just be really careful. Just make sure I always had my mask on, even if I wasn't in a COVID patient room, I pretty much taught myself to wear my N95 mask constantly just because, you know, there were some nurses that had gotten sick and things like that. So I tried, you know, to be extra careful. I was really on top of like cleaning my station uh, in the rooms. I would wipe them down multiple times a shift just because you don't know, you know, you pick something up, you put it down, you pick it up, you go out of the room, you touch your face, you try to avoid it, but sometimes it's just it's very real. I mean, it's hard because, you know, when you're working with, 
you know, in those situations, like the littlest thing totally could expose you. You don't know. Overall, just diving into what do you feel like you learned from the whole experience of working in a pandemic? So I've, I've learned a couple different things. Like personally, as like individual growth, I, I've kind of learned that it was a little bit, I think of a, it was a, it's a conflicting experience that I had. It was really hard. Like, you know, we can talk about it more. I'll get into details. It was really hard and I'm having a really hard time coming back, but I've learned, you know, kind of almost the power that I have. Like it's made me more confident. Like I can do things, you know, it just made me feel like I can make kind of a difference in the world a little bit, you know? So I think I learned that my, my capabilities a little bit as a nurse. And, you know, I think that was a positive thing for me in general. I think this whole experience with COVID has been just a terrible negative reflection on our healthcare system. Yeah. I mean, I hate to see it. I hate. I hate to say it because yeah, we're we work in healthcare. We're realty here, baby. So, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think we've failed on a lot of things, and I think it's in some cases a little bit embarrassing. Um, that we can't protect our healthcare providers the way that we need to. You know, I, I hear things, I see things. I mean, we see rain ponchos being used as gowns. I use the same N95 mask trash for bags. weeks. Yeah, trash bags. Yep. You know, uh, our cleaning products are like super on the on the low. We're using like weird cleaning sprays. I don't even know yeah. how effective these things are. It's just mm-hmm. we should be prepared for these things. You know, as the best country in the right. world the you wealthiest know, we yes and the wealthiest right yeah. we should be prepared for these things and we just were not and if our we really need to to take a step back and really look at our healthcare system as a whole because i just think that this is a very yeah it reflects on our healthcare system and it's not good it is crazy to me and which is why i'm glad to bring you in here today how many stories i have personally heard from nurses who have either worked in you know a lot of the hot spots we're talking like new york boston we're talking um you know, now Arizona, um, Washington, these places where they're so affected and hearing the stories over and over. And I think it's important to bring this to light. It's really important. Can you maybe dive into what did your day-to-day look like as an ICU nurse? Like, okay, you woke up, specifics, get specifics. How did your day, the workflow go? So I think one thing I want to highlight too, like during this time, like I said, it was super isolating and very easily I guess I could say depressing um and I knew what I was walking into every day and it was really hard so like I said I really tried to focus on my self-care and one thing I started kind of doing is uh meditating to kind of help deal with this whole thing and so like even now I've like carried it home and what I kind of start with is like just like sitting on the edge of the bed and like thinking like you can do this Mm -hmm. it's gonna be okay telling myself like you're a good nurse you're a good person we're gonna get through this and just like kind of repeating these like mantras like in my head yeah it's important to have that yeah and it would depend on the day whatever was going on I always shower like every morning or my hair would be like crazy so like again I carry that into the shower just like you know thinking and reflecting trying to be mindful of everything you know trying to really deal um, I am trying to deal with things head on like I'm not trying to ignore it I know that these things are happening and then um you know like I said I lived really close to work so I would drive in and luckily they provided us with scrubs surgical scrubs that we could change into so I would change we'd get report just like regular kind of in the NICU 
report and then um the life of a covid nurse on the unit is like crazy because you really like tying it back to being organized you really have to be organized because once you're one you want to limit your exposure in the room Mm -hmm. you know two cluster your care yeah like totally cluster your care and i think being a NICU nurse kind of helped in this way especially like when we take care of small babies we have to cluster our care we only do care like cares like every six hours you know we have to really be mindful of the stimulus to to you know these super preterm uh infants and so i think that kind of like played in my favor a little bit so i was i we had to be super organized you know you had to gather all your supplies make sure you had everything as you went into the room or if not i'm sure you've seen the videos of like nurses like waving inside of the room like hey could you grab me this like that hello yeah and then everyone else would be in your room in in their rooms and you're like stuck you're like dang it and then you have to come out take off all your ppe and then yeah so you just really had to plan your day so i would sit through write down like all my meds make sure i didn't even forget one medication so i wouldn't have to go out and grab it you know grab my thermometer so I can take my temps if I had uh, diabetic patients take their blood sugars and things so I just would have all of the supplies in a bag or in one of those like uh, wash basin things and like carry it in do all of my care and then come out usually go into my next I usually had two patients to okay. even if they're intubated which I Sometimes we'll get in the NICU. Not it, it kind of depends. But yeah, depends like I on could, your NICU. you could have two intubated, sedated, those situations. kind of heavy, heavy patients, pressers, and everything like that. Right. And so then I would go into my next patient's room, and then I would chart and kind of rinse and repeat after that. Just again cleaning, washing my hands until they were like cracked. And um, typically in ICUs, at least with that, were they usually one to ones, or were was that a normal no. thing to have two, or like their workflow there in their yeah. ICUs is two patients? Yeah, I don't, I don't even think there was really a day that I had one patient. I think my first day off orientation, they gave me one patient just so I could get used to the charting, which was really nice of them. Actually, it made it a little easier just to focus on one patient and kind of get all the charting down. Other than that, yeah, it was it was two patients, and then. What they did too is, so there was two Holy Family Hospitals and they closed down pretty much the other one and tried to merge their resources into one hospital. So like combining their PPE. But what they also did was gave nurses the opportunity to come to Methuen and be our kind of like resource extender person. And so a lot of them were more so like med surge nurses and they would come and do our baths, our temps, or they would do oh, a t- awesome. or, or at least help us with turns and stuff it was super helpful because i was kind of like you know we have to turn our patients every two hours to prevent you know bed sores or pressure injuries um and so having them help break up the amount of times we would have to go into the room it really helped because i mean getting everything on is it's a process you know yeah. and each, I think each hospital, I mean, maybe we can talk about that a little bit. I think each yeah. hospital's PPE is a little different. I was going to say, we have a little section here of PPE, but how does that, how did that play out for you guys? Yeah. So like I said, luckily I never felt like we didn't, ha- there was maybe just a short period of time where we were running long gowns, but for the most part, like I felt pretty protected. Uh, however, we did have to reuse our N95 mask. So they gave us this uh, like patient belonging bag. They're like, you'll put your face shield. So you get a face shield and your N95 mask in here and then you'll hang it on the wall and every day you'll come in and grab it and that's what you use. We did get new surgical masks every day and then like um, one a day. caps. Yeah. 
every day or if it broke or whatever sometimes see but this is crazy to me because um and i think a lot of nurses have a very similar experience that you did but to me it's still you know the fact that hospitals cannot supply you what technically up until this pandemic was which was standard which would be a new n95 mask every time you go in right (laughs) so the fact that every nurse is saying and so many nurses do this selflessly and they say i felt protected or i felt you know i had adequate but it's like you don't you don't you should have a new n95 with any time of exposure you should have a new gown and even it's a trickle down effect even in our children's hospital i mean we get one mask one medical mask a day so and here we are we're saying thank you for that yes that's not technically if i'm going into a patient's room with pseudomonas or with mrsa and i'm coming in and out of that of different rooms that's our mindset i feel like it's it's crazy to me because we should have enough equipment to make this what our standard is despite the fact that we're in a pandemic you know what you're 100% right. And we all and say you know that. I we all are like, forgot. Yeah, I protected, like, I forget. But... I'm like, oh, that was fine. Yeah. No, I mean, right. It's not fine. Up till now, the expectation was when you're in a, you know, a TB room, if you're in a room with TB, you had to do this crazy over the top, you know, how you don and put on your, your PPE and then you put it in this basin and then you get a, re- a brand new every time you go in. Like that's, that was the standard. And here we are now, we're in a pandemic. And as you said, like, we're the richest, wealthiest com- country in the world. And we're still, even to this day, even to this very moment, we are still battling this PPE issue. And it, by the way, it's not brought to light. This is not, you know, and I think so many things have overcome that particular conversation. And it's still an issue, which is crazy to me. I'm like, how is that okay? How is that okay for us to be putting so many lives at line? And the majority, so many people who have died are frontline providers. That is crazy to me. Yeah. You know what? You're right. It's not okay. Yeah. I, I wasn't protected mm-hmm. that well. You know, I, but you want to give credit to to hospitals that want to or that, you know, are trying to protect you. But still, right. at the end of the day. You're right. It's, it's just, it's changed our our perception and our Mm -hmm. perspective right like yeah uh, yeah, you're right and you're alive and i know obviously to a certain to a certain degree they were doing something right because here you are but it's still it still is not it's absolutely it's uh it's embarrassing it's unacceptable i mean 100 percent getting right here like you said it's so funny now during this time it's like well everything we've ever been taught like it doesn't apply anymore it doesn't it's fine you know Mm -hmm. like but yeah you're right i guess what I kind of mean by saying is, you know, I felt protected is I am hearing about hospitals um, still to this day mm-hmm. that although the new research just came out that COVID is airborne, airborne right? Mm-hmm. Which I mean, I I don't want to sound cocky, but I, I could have told we all you know that. that. I, I will say everyone in the medical field yeah, like, has I been mean, I was like, There's no way this is just yeah. droplet, you know? Yeah. But um, so when I came out, I was kind of like, duh. But what I didn't realize in talking to, to some friends that I have is that hospitals were only implementing droplet precautions for their nurses. And so major healthcare sh- systems, one in San Diego specifically, they were only following droplet precautions, which means only a surgical mask. And then huge numbers of their nurses Insane. were getting sick and they're like, well, I wonder why. And so I don't know if they're changing that at this point. So I guess I feel lucky that we were supplied N95 masks at all. 
I guess that's what, right so the ridiculous. standard, which is like a really, really, really low bar. Yeah, but so well, but you know, and that says something to your. I mean, I'm thankful that your organization did that because that's probably saved a lot of lives. But it's it is insane to me, and in my humble opinion, I've talked a little bit about this on here about how I felt like the um, lack of importance on PPE was never really highlighted in social media and that people, I feel like reporters and way things were being reported was so just out of turn and it is affected. It's a trickle down effect of how it's affected everybody. I mean, how do you feel about just everything, the way that it's been going? I mean, especially because you were a frontline worker. So for you, your perspective is, is so real. So let's talk about media first. Um, taking it back to the toilet paper thing. You know, I think media is, and, and we talked about this before, like this isn't even a, anything political. I think that media, and I've, I've really checked out of the news, um, especially so since we've... I've gone to Massachusetts, just mm-hmm. because I feel like they're inflating the wrong parts of this issue. Like, so like you said, the PPE issue hasn't really been talked about as much. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is because it looks really bad for us. You know, yeah. it makes us look really bad. That's a good and so point. we're talking about other things and it's inciting this anxiety this like uproar and then everyone went and bought toilet paper and all the water and (laughs) all the wrong things to be buying right and so i think it Uh, it just shows how the media has it just highlights what it wants to what it thinks it's is important and not what really we should be talking about and so i think that is part of our failure in this whole covid19 thing as far as social media goes this has probably been one of honestly the most frustrating parts of this whole thing for me you know I've had a really hard time with this whole process and I being in Massachusetts people knowing I I tried to post about it a little bit on Instagram and um people were reaching out to me and being like is it really that bad and I'm like yeah it's that bad you know but to like have people like if there was someone out fighting a war and someone texted you, hey, is it like really that bad? I mean, it's just so crazy. Yeah. And then the misinformation. So then I'm saying things about, oh, if you're asymptomatic, then you can't spread it. Or people were texting me about this. Is this true? This conspiracy documentary thing. Oh, dear Lord. And I was like, no, this is not true. And they're just just how it's all planned by the government. I mean, I just feel like things have just gotten so out of hand. And then, um, you know, I would have people texting me, well, you're not intubating patients, right? Like non-healthcare people. You're not intubating patients, right? Well, we don't want to, but there comes a point where we have to intubate this patient or, you know, Mm -hmm. they won't make it. Right. Well, have you tried high doses of zinc or high doses of vitamin C? And I'm like, oh, God, you're just... Like, can you give a little picture of, for people who, you know, obviously you're frontline and you see this, what was like the worst moment for you or the worst day, things that you were seeing? Okay. So the worst day that I had in Massachusetts. So in Massachusetts, while I was there, a patient died almost every day. When I first got to the hospital, I had heard or seen zero COVID patients in orientation. They said, you know, hey guys, welcome. Thank you for being here. We have 80 positive COVID patients in the hospital. 20 of them are intubated and sedated in the ICU. I was like, wow. And then I got the tidbit that they think the survival rate's like 5% once they're intubated of survival. And 
so I had this day where I lost a patient on my shift and this patient was younger in my eyes she was in her late 50s mm-hmm. she had no pre-existing conditions mm-hmm. and what we were seeing a lot of with COVID is kind of these patients were throwing clots like microemboli and they were dying from um, PEs or, or strokes and stuff like that. So we were heparinizing patients. So we actually had this patient that had blood in her brain. And in the morning, I had taken care of her and this specific morning, she was no longer responsive in any way. Her, pu- her pupils were fixed and she was becoming more and more unstable. Sure enough, we went and got a CT we, and it showed that she had blood in her brain. It was incompatible with life. So we were planning on withdrawing care and she had family members. And I mean, this is just something that as a nurse, you never think you're going to have to do or say, especially coming from the NICU and then transferring into adults because family is pretty much always there for, yeah, for a NICU, NICU kid. They are. Mm-hmm. And so this family's calling me and we're updating them and they want to come and see their their family member and we said okay you know you can come in because this is end of life so if it was considered end of life or you were saying goodbye one person could come at a time for a 15 minute visit any longer than that was considered a COVID exposure we couldn't give them n95 masks but we did give them surgical masks or if they came with their own cloth mask we would allow them to wear that we would give them a gown and gloves and i would pretty much have to sit there and watch the clock and then go in and tell these people that they had to that was it time was up and they had to leave and I mean like what is that like how how do you how are you okay with that you know that's never anything because I I like I said I empathize I put myself in their shoes and think if that was my mom my dad my aunt my uncle I would break down the door to be there you know so for me to be like I'm sorry you can't be here and then I remember um her sister was the last family member to come and we had to limit it only like two or three people could come you know the whole family couldn't come so there were people who couldn't say goodbye mm-hmm. and she was our point of contact we would usually choose uh, one person to be like their point of contact and so I had talked to her on the phone multiple times and she said you know can I please be here at the end and I said I'm sorry but no you can't be and she said so she'll be alone and I said no I'll I'll be here for her mm-hmm. and wow. Um, she was crying and it was just devastating and she said you know you've been really great through this can I hug you and it was one of those moments where you know it's COVID times you know, social totally. distancing and everything like that but I, I couldn't help it I was like yeah absolutely you yeah. can hug me and I hugged her and yeah. um, I held her sister's hand and we extubated and she never took another breath and that was just really hard for me because, you know, you hear the people posting things that it's, you know, oh, well, it's people that have pre-existing conditions. It's people who are already sick. And it's not true. And actually, she was an essential worker. She was working as um, a psychologist in Boston. Wow. And she lost the battle of COVID. What was the range of um, patients that you saw as far as, you know... Who, like, were, who had COVID, who ended up in your care. Yeah. Uh, so we, we saw a range of people. Some people were really random. We had a 21-year-old 
that was really sick and she ended up getting transferred to Mass General because we could no longer manage her care. I was working at a smaller community hospital so they could do a decent amount of things but like if they needed ECMO, they didn't do ECMO there and stuff. But uh, she had sickle cell so that was, it was hitting her really, really hard and um, you know, she wasn't doing so well. Um, the most common thing though, because I think what a lot of people conceive as a pre-existing condition as far as it's tied to COVID is Oh, well, you know, they had cancer or a low immune system or autoimmune disease. or Those are the things that I've kind of seen on social media as far as, you know, talking about social media and misinformation kind of surrounding what exactly a pre-existing condition is. What I noticed the most it was hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. And when we talk about, well, it's only people with pre-existing conditions, it's not going to affect me. I, I just wrote a paper recently and it's over 40%, just about 50% of people are obese in our country. And it's an epidemic. I mean, hypertension, diabetes, those are epidemics in our country. And we, it's based around the way we eat, the way fast food is advertised, everything. I mean, we overall are not a very healthy society. Yes. And that is what I saw. We have a big root problem. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. so when I talk about our problems as a healthcare system, that's what I'm referring to is we are such a fix-it society like hey we can give you this pill and you can carry on with your life and it'll help manage your diabetes at least for now but you know yeah and people are so easy to okay well just a quick fix take a pill or yeah as opposed to put in the hard work you know get healthy physically mentally put in the time put in the work you Mm -hmm. have yeah yeah we really need to we undervalue our primary and preventative care we really need to shift our focus to preventative and primary care we need to put more value more money into that because overall it'll benefit it'll benefit our healthcare system um you know lowering our rates of obesity diabetes hypertension i think would have really changed the course of how covid affected our country yeah um, but yeah, that that was, if you were obese, you had hypertension or diabetes, you had serious issues with COVID. Okay. Typically, when, when COVID patients presented, what were you seeing, like, as far as ICU? Like, what was their course like? Yeah, it was, um, it was Groundhog's Day. It was the same thing. It was, it was just really interesting to see the same patient's over and over and over the same presentation we would lose a patient and admit one it was the same thing admitted usually either from the ed or the floor on high flow maxed out high flow nasal cannula with probably a non-rebreather on top of that desatting active activity intolerant couldn't even stand short of breath cough and then usually it's like the next day I come in, sure enough, they're intubated. They were desetting. We would try to prone them, but especially elderly patient, patients, especially obese patients, they can't tolerate being prone for, for very long. It's very uncomfortable. So telling um, a conscious patient, hey, you know, you have to lay on your stomach for a really long time, it just doesn't go very well. But we would try it and we do everything we, did, we could to prevent intubation, but they would end up intubated. And from there, uh, you know, multi-system organ failure would start kind of kicking in due to either the hypoxia and acidosis or maybe even some of the clots that were being thrown mm-hmm. we would heparinize pretty much every patient uh, at one uh, after a certain point they were realizing that patients were throwing so many clots and then almost all of them needed some kind of presser um keep that so blood to keep their up. to keep their blood pressure up they were yeah. hypotensive 
and then almost I mean what I felt like ended up kind of being the end for people was the kidney failure and I think this is something that I've like talked to even healthcare other healthcare providers and nurses are like oh I had no idea and this is another thing with media it's not being talked about everyone thinks well oh it's just like an upper respiratory thing right like, it's, no, a, it's just is- a lung breathing issue it's not yeah no it's not it yeah. is a systemic issue and it, mm-hmm. it affects your whole body and you know uh these patients then their kidneys would start failing you know their urine output would drop everything like that and so they would need dialysis so we would put the patients on dialysis and for working in the NICU I wasn't as familiar with this but I had talked to people about it before I went there because we don't do hemodialysis really in the NICU I don't know if some NICUs do but none that I've ever worked at I think the only thing we've ever CRRT but we don't or peritoneal peritoneal but we don't you're right we don't they'll filter on ECMO ECMO yeah we just do we handle it so differently yeah it's just it's just a, a different issue that we have yeah and so uh you know we'd have our patients on dialysis and then they would start taking our their blood pressures during dialysis especially when they were removing fluid and so we'd have to go up and up and up on their pressers to the point where they were like on three different pressers and they were maxed out we couldn't we couldn't go up anymore and we decided you know they can no longer tolerate dialysis And so we would have to call the families and say, you know, we've done everything. They can't tolerate dialysis if they weren't. And then as far as transferring transferring to another facility, maybe for CRRT or ECMO, they weren't accepting any patients for ECMO. I think it was either over the age of 60 or 65. Wow. I think it was over the age of 60. And then if they weren't like decently stable, they wouldn't accept them either. So, you know, you have a patient that's maxed out on pressors you know, that's not a stable patient for a transfer. And so what I ultimately, these patients would end up dying from was kidney failure because they couldn't do dialysis. It's a trickle down effect. That's something I think that people don't really, or many non-healthcare or many, maybe even non-ICU thought process to understand it. So, cause I had this discussion with um, our family members probably like, I don't know, a week ago. And I think people really don't understand the concept of it is a respiratory, it starts as maybe a respiratory thing, but then, you know, it's this, this cytokine storm. There's a lot of inflammatory process going on throughout the body, and then it starts affecting your organs. And one of the biggest things that gets hit, yet is one of the most effective things and things that you need to survive are your kidneys. The kidneys oh, are the absolutely. things that really, I mean, as far as you're talking, you know, excreting and managing all of your blood pH and, you know, managing things that come in and out of your body, that's essential. And it's crazy because that is something that gets affected. And that could literally, as you have pointed out, it could affect your life or death status. Oh, yeah. Very easily. And people, I don't think that's a concept that people really understand. It's a trickle down effect. It's a domino Mm -hmm. effect. So, I don't Maybe. think that, I don't think like non healthcare people really appreciate how important your kidneys are. Correct. In, in everything that they do. You yes. know. Which is you know, fine. Yeah, that's you don't fine. understand it's it just until... something that's not when you say like, oh well it's a lung like everyone knows like you need your lungs, your heart and your brain, kind of, right? Right. And I think that's what kind of like just I guess commonplace common knowledge that people think so when you say oh well it's just like pneumonia okay well like people have pneumonia and they live that's fine but no like this is a whole systemic oh and another thing I want to bring up too that I don't think was talked about a lot and even a nurse that was out with COVID she was pretty sick uh that worked for the hospital I was at she got this as well we called it COVID toes and so people's toes were turning black and purple and 
we're not sure if it was just mere lack of circulation, but I mean, we see that with other diseases like pneumonia, the flu, things like that, that you think what you would see, but what we think it was due to was like the hypercoagulability that we were seeing and why we were needing to heparinize these patients. They were just throwing micro clots and yeah, their toes were turning black. It was so weird. Yeah. As far as clinical manifestations, were there anything else that you guys would see? So you have the toes, obviously, like, respiratory-wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, like, as far as respiratory goes, because um, another thing I want to talk about, too, is, I guess, like, testing a little bit. Yeah. So we would have patients, you know, our testing's not 100%, and I think there's com- they're coming out with new, even different tests. Even now, our testing's still things, not 100%. Yeah, and we were testing even less at the time. So we would have patients that were negative, right? But their clinical picture was COVID. 100%, 100% looked like COVID. Mm-hmm. Their x-ray had that ground glass. That's like one characteristic of COVID is the way that the lungs... The x-ray appears. Appear. Yeah. Yes, it mm-hmm. has, this, has this ground glass appearance on the x-ray. And, you know, the respiratory distress, the cough, the non-productive, non-productive dry cough... And they would just everything, and then there was other lab values like procalcitonin and things like and that they were looking at as well that are they're finding kind of a correlation toward that that points towards COVID. And so we'd have these. The clinical picture was like this is COVID. It looks like every other patient, and they would test negative, 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 and then one patient on I think it was the third or fourth test finally started testing positive. Or we had a patient that was negative I think like three times. But we just proceeded as COVID because at this point she was intubated and everything. And then we drew antibodies and her antibodies were positive. Yeah. So the testing thing has also like really thrown a loop in this um, kind of how we're addressing this issue as well. Yeah. So maybe people who are actually who probably were positive and came up negative might have been positive in the, you know, and I think that's a big thing, too, is our testing has not been 100 percent accurate, which is frustrating. And we're also not, we're still not testing enough as we should be. Oh, oh, right. No. I mean, even for us, it's ironic because you would think that any healthcare provider, anyone going into a hospital really should be tested at some point. Oh, yeah. And not, I'll tell you 100%, and that is not happening. should be provided happening. for free from the hospitals. At least you would. Yeah. Think. Oh, yeah. You would think. That's not happening. Oh, no way. As far as like your overall picture of your experience with that particular site, because you were there for six weeks. Correct. correct? is there like a sum up of how you felt about that like if you could if you could sum up how you felt coming away from that experience you know I'll be honest with you like I feel like I'm I'm still kind of processing the entire experience and I you know someone sent me this article from the New York Times I believe it was talking about how nurses are coming back from these experiences and as they slow down they're giving themselves a chance to like reflect on everything that they experience and I really haven't given myself that um, I'm, I'm definitely guilty of kind of I guess it's my way of coping at this point you know I, I've been trying to keep really busy. I'm managing a lot of things at the same time. And I'm just trying to keep my mind, I think, away from it. You know, I can without a doubt say that I'm going to be talking to someone. And I want every other frontline worker and anyone that's going through this right now to know that it's okay and that you're not alone. And I think I have some form of PTSD from this whole situation. I just, I never have been really like an anxious person, but I feel this like level of anxiety and I feel a lot of guilt 
I feel a lot of guilt. I have a really hard time with people calling me a hero. It actually is, it hurts my feelings uh, in a way. And it's just such a weird thing because I, I don't feel like we were treated like heroes. People can call us a hero, make us a sign, and that's fantastic, and bring us food. But they're not protecting us. They're not taking care of us, you know. And, you know, heroes are supposed to save people, and I felt like I didn't do that. You know, I feel like this experience made me feel like a terrible nurse because I went there to help people, and I couldn't do that. And I actually hurt a lot of people, I think, like by telling them, hey, you can't be here with your family member and knowing that some of these patients died alone or with me who they don't even know. Um, and like this whole experience has changed my perspective on life altogether. Now as you know, I'm starting to try to address it and you know, I try to think about it. I meditate. I try to address it head on, but you know, it's hard, but it it's just changed the way that I think of our healthcare system. Um, it changes. It changes the way I look at my career overall. Overall. Yeah, I. I mean, I would maybe counter your your um, explanation with saying that you, I feel like your patients were lucky to have you. Thank you. They were really lucky, Vanessa, because I know how good of a nurse you are, and this whole thing I think is is very emotional and you know I could only imagine the amount of PTSD that you and so many nurses are honestly going to face it's I think that's going to be a very real thing and I'm I'm proud of you for actually even saying that you are willing to see someone about it because I feel like maybe people are still feeling like they just you know don't want to even face that but that's a huge thing too I mean mental health and this whole situation I is is it's you're in a war zone you know, you were truly in a war mm-hmm. against something that we don't have. We, I, You know, I don't think we really had the amount of support that we should have had. Yeah. And I think I just hope people that actually go to war, I hope that they're treated better. And I hope that people trust in them more because I feel like people are questioning healthcare a lot right now. You yeah. Know, what to believe and everything. Yeah. Hold on. Wait. Thank you so much for listening. You guys, this episode is getting extra detailed, super juicy. So we're going to wait to release the second half of this episode until Friday. So Friday, we're going to be deep diving. We're going to be going into Vanessa's experiences as a lesbian, gay woman, as a nurse and a healthcare provider. We're going to be getting her experiences in the LGBTQ community as a gay queer woman and also as a nurse. We're going to be diving into her experiences as an essential worker, making an impact on the world one person at a time. You guys, this second part of the episode is going to be so amazing and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Things like the Stonewall riots and, you know, not to be like cheesy and cliche, but it is a reminder of the people who have died and, you know, honestly today are still dying fighting for rights in our community. Um, trans, especially black transgender women are targeted and killed and it's not talked about very much and it needs to be and so I think a lot of people thought well you guys can get married now so you're good what are you celebrating why are you why is there pride month again it doesn't stop at being able to get married you know it was just determined that healthcare providers can discriminate against transgender individuals and so there's still even though I don't identify as transgender it is my community and you know this battle isn't done and we need to continue to advocate for you know 
everyone in this, in this community. I truly value your time, you guys, and look forward to bringing you more selfie shows. This episode was loaded with information, so we are going to link everything below for you. In order to support the show, please head over to rate and review the show, you guys. Let us know what you thought. We love hearing from you. We love it when you get specific in the reviews. A guest or part that you really took away from the review, please let us know. And as you guys know, we have some super cute selfie swag starting. So if you leave your Insta handle in the review, I'm going to send over some of our super cute stickers and a selfie badge reel featuring Selena, our selfie icon. Make sure you're following us on our Insta at C-E-L-L-F-I-E underscore podcast. Make sure to hit that subscribe button You can find all of our episodes on www.tipsfromtori.com. And per usual, you guys, check out those show notes below. Scroll down. Check out that information about our guests and our sponsors. And as always, thank you so much for listening. And we're going to catch you guys on Friday. See you then.